welcome to the Classroom in Your Living Room podcast. I am acting as your host. My name is Trisha Murphy, and I serve as the Development Director within the College of Education at MTSU. Now, this is a, a fun opportunity for us to connect with so many of our alumni and friends, and we know that so many of us are finding ourselves at home with children, juggling responsibilities, and yet still wanting to ensure that our students and our, our children are moving forward. Okay, so we are here today in episode four with Dr. Jeremy Winters, who serves the College of Education as a professor in elementary and special education, along with Dr. Ryan Seth Jones of the Womack Educational Leadership, where he serves as an assistant professor. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I am particularly excited for this episode as someone who, on the ACT, struggled in the math portion more than any other portion. How are we going to teach our kids math at home? And I'm so looking forward to diving right in here. And Dr. Winters, I know that you are walking us through these early learners in these elementary years. How do we teach our children and these students concepts that maybe we don't know how, how to teach or how to do in some cases? One of the things that I think right now during this time of stress that we can do is undo maybe some things that are going on in the school. And one of those areas is in the area of a disposition in that math is meaningful and that we may not be the best at it, but yet we know that it's worthy and worthy of attempt. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think we have to show our kids at home how to do something. And what would you say for those parents who have a lesson maybe from a really great teacher in the classroom and they just don't know how to show them how to how to do it? There is a great uh, TED talk that was done by Joe Bowler on the idea of mathematical mindsets. And in her work, one of the things she talks about is the power of yet. And I think even when we may not necessarily know it, or I've heard this a lot from my kids, I just can't do that. One of the things that she constantly talks about is, I can't do that yet. But, you know, there's power in the struggle. And so I think maybe some of the questions and some things parents can do are to have the students say, you know, ask them, can you explain that to me? Can you show me what you're thinking? And then one of the biggest tips I can tell you, I'd actually got from an article I read a few years ago about a middle school teacher and something he was doing and that I try to do. And it's a struggle at home because sometimes as a parent, we want to definitely, you know, really help our children and take care of them. But one of the things that he said in the article was that he stopped carrying a pencil. And I think in terms of for our students, one thing that we're quick to do as a parent is if a student is struggling with something is to grab their pencil and just do the work for them, thinking that we taught them something. And I think maybe just putting the pencil down, telling them, can you explain to me? Can you show me? And letting them uh, kind of guide us through what they're thinking. Yes, I will admit that I'm guilty of that in my house, even with my son, Dr. Winters, you told me about a man named George Dawson and how he lived his life keeping from his children that he could not read. Can you, can you expound on that and how that could be relevant for us today? 
Yeah, there's a book. It's called uh, Life is Good, and it's an autobiography about this guy named George Dawson. What he would do is whenever the his children would come to him, he would have them stand up and read to him. And he would kind of nod along and he would ask them questions, but they never knew he didn't know how to read himself. And I think we can take that into this same idea of math. So when our children are working some problems, you know, our first inclination shouldn't be to tell them, well, I don't know how to do that. Maybe have them explain, hear their thinking, and then that might help us to understand a little bit more to kind of guide them even with further questions we could ask. That's so good. And it's funny that you mentioned a reading example, because so often when we think about math, we think about different things that we used in our classrooms as a child. Maybe that's flashcards. But how can books actually help us in the math area? There actually are a lot of really good children's literature books that are related to math. There's a few authors that come to mind, like Stuart Murphy. Stuart Murphy writes a lot of children's uh, literature books and math. Kind of in relation to that, one thing I was thinking about, I had a colleague uh, several years ago send me an article talking about how at night we read books to children before bed. But it also talked about why don't we do math problems before bed? But I'll point you to two kind of different resources. One's called um, mathbeforebed.com, and the other one's called Bedtime Math, and that is actually an app you can get. These are things that, you know, as you're putting your child to bed, maybe some questions that you can kind of pose or have them think about. And the premise of the article was that last thing before they go to bed, have them thinking mathematically. Gosh, those are great resources. Thank you so much, Dr. Winters. What are other activities that we can keep in mind to do math at home? You know, there's different ideas that are out there. I have a friend of mine who uh, she recently did a podcast on uh, math in the kitchen. And there's, you know, a lot of uh, people think about different fractions that come up when you're cooking in terms of, you know, measuring. She also talked about in that podcast about you know, just pulling out the boxes that are in your cabinet and, and looking at stuff like calories and serving sizes. And, and if you really stop and take a look, you'll see tons of, of math around that. We tend to do just a lot of kind of counting activities. So for those of you that, you know, have really, you know, young children or the early elementary years, one of my favorite things that my son and I used to do would we would just get a balloon and see how many times we can hit it until it touches the ground. We would start out just one to one, you know, one, two, three, but then we would kind of challenge ourselves. So I would have him skip count every time we hit it, count by twos or count by threes, gathering collections of items. My wife's grandmother, she used to have the kids go out in the yard and for every acorn they brought back, they got a penny. And then she would have them count them up and you know, you would see them putting them into groups of five and then skip counting by five. You know, different kind of activities around counting can be very helpful, especially as they continue through, you know, grades three, four, and five. Mm, that's so helpful. And I think those are things that we have lying around that we can make use of, which I think is important at this time. As a parent of a practically four-year-old, we worry a lot about gosh, I hope I'm doing this right. What would you say for parents who just want to know what not to do during this time related to math? So I think one thing that has has really changed in education, and I think teachers are, are really promoting problem solving, reasoning, and struggle. 
you know, one thing that I fear is that during this time, parents kind of revert back to maybe the way they were taught 20, 30 years ago, rather than really pushing problem solving and reasoning, which are critical skills. And so I encourage parents, you know, when a problem comes up, engage your children in thinking about different ways that it might be solved. Our yard was sloped such that a bunch of mud was coming into our patio. And so we needed to kind of build a drain around it. And a practical problem, you know, having, you know, your children hear you think through that problem and what are some different solutions? I mean, you know, should we redo the whole patio and raise it up? Show them these different possible ways of coming to the problem, you know, and then why you choose which one you did. Analyze the different ones um, versus, all right, let's sit down for 20 minutes and I'm going to give you flashcards and, you know, if you get one wrong, we're going to start all over and those type of things. Yes, we are big fans of love and logic over here. And so constantly asking, what can we do tomorrow when we try this so that we have a different outcome? And I, I love what you what you said there. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Winters. I appreciate your time with us today. Well, you're welcome. Dr. Jones, I would love to talk a little bit more about the 10 and up age group and how we can make math accessible for these young kids. What would you, you know, what would you say is important right now related to math at home for those older folks? Well, I think a lot of what I would say has a lot of similarities to what Dr. Winters just talked about, giving parents an opportunity to focus on uh, the dispositional side of mathematics. Uh, You might think of it in other things. Maybe if you grew up playing baseball, a big reason why you throw baseball with your kids is because you want them to love baseball not just to have good throwing mechanics. In fact, I think we should think about math in the same way, that part of what we can do at home is to help our kids see that these tools are actually really helpful, to help our kids see that even if I don't know how to do something as a parent, I can jump into it with you and and try and figure it out with you and ask you what you think, and, and you can actually teach me things that I didn't know about. And that that can, can create a disposition around mathematics that sort of uh, hopefully pulls back a little bit of the fear factor or the idea that I'm just a person that's not able to do this and can create an environment in which mathematics is the kind of thing we just talk about, even if we think we don't know much about it. That's exactly right. And even right now, we're, we're kind of inundated right now with these, with these data visual, visualizations and gosh, predictions right now with the coronavirus epidemic. How would you say that we could utilize some of that really good data or not so good, I should say? Well, I think that something that's interesting about data is how it's becoming increasingly important just to make sense of the newspaper or a news story that we watch on TV or read on the internet. But students actually don't have a lot of opportunities to learn how to think with data well. No, I think part of that can be scary because you might have the idea as a parent, well, how in the world am I going to help my kid learn something if I don't already know it myself? I think this is a great chance to sort of show your kids that, hey, this isn't some kind of magical knowledge that that you have to have some kind of special degree to think about. We can We can join in together. There's data all around us. I know that I am often daily looking at websites with complicated data visualizations, making predictions, competing models, model predictions, changing day to day. I think it illustrates why these ideas are so important, but it also provides an opportunity to engage in really interesting ways with your kids. Yes. And although there's a lot of 
bad surrounding this pandemic, there, it also is bringing about some good conversations. We're gathered as a family now more than ever in our generation. And so as we're gathering, how can we as a people think critically about about some of these things surrounding us, even in our home? So I, I'm grateful. And that was well said. Thank you so much. Data, sometimes it feels as if this is something we can just pick off of a tree or, you know, grow in our garden and that we are just collectors of this data and it's here for us for our taking. Can you talk a little bit more about where data comes from and how we can help our students and our kids understand that? So on the one hand, you're totally right. And I would encourage parents with their children to sort of develop a a lens for seeing the world, making claims about us, making predictions about the world around us, and that that's a great opportunity to engage with it. But a lot of times we use the phrase that we're collecting data, and that makes it sound like you just go out and, and kind of sweep a net and find it, but that's not true. In order to have data, you have to create it. You have to decide how to measure things. You have to decide where to measure. Right now, there's a lot of interesting ways that that's becoming visible to people, but possibly leading to uh, not productive responses. So so one, how quickly the data and models and predictions related to this pandemic are changing from day to day. That makes very visible that these are not just objective numbers, that they are numbers that people are making and doing things with. So that's good. But if what that leads you to say is to just throw your hands up and say, ah, so who knows, no way of ever knowing, that's actually not particularly helpful. And that's a pretty... Um, bad state of affairs for us as human beings. So I think what are better questions would be to engage kids with questions like, what do you think these numbers mean? Where did they come from? What kinds of measurements did they take? Who did they measure? So something as simple as, oh, if if you are testing people for this disease only if they come in and are sick, what kinds of people might not be getting tested that could have it? And so then you get to have a conversation about what can we actually learn from these numbers based on what we know about them or or what questions we might be asking about them. It highlights um, some of the things we might know better than others, where our uncertainty is, what kinds of data we would need in order to become more certain about some answers. Those are the kinds of conversations um, that there's so many opportunities to have uh, right now with children in our homes. You're right. And that goes back to Dr. Winter's good point about problem solving and critical thinking and and how we can use these elements um, that can be fearful to maybe even, you know, to to regain some peace in our home or peace of mind and and not looming into that area of, well, everything's unknown. You know, data, data can be our friend. Yeah. And I think that one of the ways um, to engage with with thinking about that more critically is to do something that actually students don't have a lot of opportunities to do in schools. This is generally true for math, that math and uh, instruction about data and statistics in schools a lot of times doesn't look like um, what math or data looks like in the real world. And one of the ways that that happens in schools is that kids are usually given data with questions already they're supposed to be asking that they didn't come up with themselves and answers to those questions that apparently someone already knows that they need to now find. That's just not how anyone outside of school engages with data. One of the things, in addition to engaging with data that's coming in towards you, is to find opportunities for you and your kids to ask questions about your own lives and things around you and create the data that you use to answer those questions. That, that, that might sound daunting 
to parents, but it's much easier than you think. It's questions that you might be already asking. Questions about your garden and where flowers grow best in that corner or in that other corner. Uh, Questions about how much electricity different appliances in your house use. Or or even something as simple as, how active am I during this stay-at-home order? Um, Am I more active than I usually am? Am I less active than I usually am? Is my activity different? And the reason why asking a question like that can be helpful is because if you're going to answer it, if you're going to create data to answer it, I should say, you're going to have to answer a whole host of other questions like, well, what would I measure to determine if I'm active? Would I measure heart rate? Would I measure steps? Would I measure amount of time outside versus amount of time inside? Some combination of those things. So you would have to make decisions about what to measure. You'd have to make decisions about when to measure. And then you'd have to make decisions about what to do with those numbers in order to answer your questions. And I think that what that does is it gives you and your children an opportunity to sort of peek behind the curtain of data and to see uh, what goes into uh, creating data. To answer a question and it can it can actually create new questions that you start to ask about data in the news one example i think about is last year we were watching one of these national geographic shows or planet earth or something like that and there was a big flock of birds flying across the screen and the the narrator says something like every year more than 50 million of these birds migrate from i don't know one part of the world to another And my 10-year-old son goes, how did they count them? And so, of course, with me, that was an immediate pause of the the video. And and I said, well, what do you mean, how did they count them? And he said, well, how did they count all of them? Like, first of all, that's a lot of birds to count. But my goodness, they're all flying in the air different times a day. And so we had this great conversation about, you know, he started coming up with ideas. Like, maybe they take pictures from the ground and they capture a tenth of them and they count how many is in that picture and then they just multiply it times 10. He, he even thought about things that they almost certainly did not do. Like, I'm sure they did not catch all these birds and count them and then send them back. So it created, you know, lots of interesting conversations about what does that number really mean? Well, that is, I know that as a parent, you were, you know, we, we just love those moments and we kind of um, wait for those moments of clarity with our kids. So thank you so much for, for walking through that example. What are some other, as we wrap up here, practical tools that you would just quickly give parents that might just be looking for more resources? I know Dr. Winters gave us a few. Are there any others that we ought to consider? As far as uh, engaging kids with data and, and data analysis and those sorts of things, there are some really nice online tools that are free. You know, data analysis tools aren't totally unfamiliar to many of us. We might be using them in our jobs. You know, you might use Excel or, or, or something more sophisticated in your job. The thing about those tools is that they're made for grown-ups to work with ideas that they hopefully already understand. There are some tools that are made for kids to explore data to help them develop new ideas. And one is called CODAP, C-O-D-A-P, Common Online Data Analysis Platform. And it's developed by a group of people out in California named the, uh, called the Concord Consortium. They have data sets on everything from migrating whales to the kinds of things that you might be asking about your everyday life. And then another one is called TUVA. T-U-V-A. And if you just search for these things um, in a search engine, you'll find them uh, pretty quickly, along with probably resources that teachers have developed to use with them. And the other thing I'd say is that there are many, many, many free accessible 
data sets online. We've been talking about the data related to these, uh, this pandemic. Um, the New York Times with their kind of page that they update every day, they also have a link to their raw data where you can download an Excel file that has daily data for every county in the United States of America. So you would have to actually ask a question and figure out what am I going to do to these numbers, this enormous data set um, to start to answer this question. Can I, can I chime in one thing that Dr. Jones reminded me of? Of course. So, so as he was talking and especially about the story about his son and so forth, um, it reminded me of a question I saw in a book recently and it was how often do you need an exact answer? And it was really pushing the idea of estimation. So when he was talking about the birds, I want, you know, was that an estimation? Was that exact count? There is a, a site, uh, like Dr. Jones said, you could just search for, it's called Estimation 360. And it just builds estimating ideas. And it's in terms of kind of more measurement ideas, but it kind of give you some ideas of some things you could do with your children. That is great. Yes. And I think that's fun for our kids to be able to sit in front of something and say, gosh, how many birds do you think are in there? How many, how many pieces of grass do you think are in our backyard? You know, all those, those little fun games that we play, but also being even more thoughtful and using those kind of resources. So thank you for walking through that. Well, I know I have learned a lot once again from our great experts in the College of Education. And I just want to thank you both so much again for being on with us. Thanks for having me on. I'm happy to do it. Thank you. I invite you all to stay in touch with us online through our social media platforms by phone and, of course, email. Um, All of my information is on the website and as well as in the resources portion of this podcast. I'd love to hear from you and hear how these tips helped. Again, this is Trisha Murphy, and you've been listening to the Classroom in Your Living Room podcast.